Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Thank you for joining us today for our event on a report launch for a report called Transforming European Defense. Uh, we are joined today by our three panelists, uh, Max Bergman, who is one of the co-authors of the report. Max is the director of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program here at CSIS, as well as the Stewart Center in Euro-Atlantic and Northern European Studies. Prior to this, Max was at the Center for American Progress, uh, working on the same issues, Europe, Russia, and Eurasia, and U.S. security cooperation. Max has spent years at the State Department in a variety of roles, focusing a lot on political military affairs, nonproliferation, and particularly relevant for today's conversation, uh, arms control and international security. Max is also my co-host for the Europhile podcast, which is run out of the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. Next, we're joined by Marie Jourdain, who is a visiting fellow at the Athletic Council's Europe Center. Prior to this, uh, Marie was in the French Ministry of Defense Directorate General for International Relations and Strategy for the North America Desk, focusing on U.S. defense policy with Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Crucially, she was involved in fostering U.S.-France strategic defense talks, so we're going to have a lot to talk about on this today. And she's also worked on countering illegal, illegal drug trafficking through regional cooperation in the Caribbean, French Joint Staff on Military Cooperation with the U.S. and the U.K., And speaking of the UK, last but not least, we have Sean Monahan, who is a visiting fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at CSIS, working on NATO, European security, and defense issues. Uh, Sean has spent years as a civil servant in the UK Ministry of Defense, focused on international defense policy, including NATO, the European Union, the United States, all also very relevant for today's conversation. And in recent years, as a policy analyst, he has contributed to the UK's integrated review and has led multinational research projects. So this is the panel that we have today to talk about this report. But importantly, to set the stage a little bit, uh, the Transforming European Defense is a wider project that has seen several other briefs published over the last few months, run out of CSIS uh, to focus, well, to run by the Uh, Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program in partnership with our colleagues at the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at CSIS. The goal of this project really is to leverage CSIS's interdisciplinary strength in transatlantic affairs, in political military analysis, and defense industrial engagement to create a plan of action to rationalize European defense in the wake of the war in Ukraine. The goal is also to develop specific recommendations for European policymakers to reduce inefficiencies and see creative joint endeavors for European security. There are also actionable recommendations for U.S. policymakers in how they can engage with and push some European allies to implement some of these changes. So that's the frame for the report. Um, It is co-authored, as I said, by Max Bergman and our colleague Otto Svensson. There are two key pieces to this argument, and I'll turn to Max in a second to uh, explain this. But the idea is that, one, European defense has suffered over the last 20 years of underinvestment and fragmentation, attributable to several factors that we will discuss today. And two, the European Union is an actor that will be crucial in this challenge to work on coordination and integration efforts uh, in defense for Europe. Max, let me start with you. Uh, this report is a labor of love. 
It has. <laughs> uh, you've been working on this for a while, and it is as relevant today as it was when you started on, on this effort. So walk us through the key takeaways for this report. Let's focus first on the main vulnerabilities that you highlight in the report for European defense. What are their causes before we move to the U.S. role and solutions from the EU? Well, first, thanks for moderating, and it, it's great to be here with with great colleagues uh, and friends. Uh, so, you know, I think the report actually comes at a very good time to do an assessment of European defense. Not in the in the months after uh, Russia invaded ba back last year, but we we now have some time. We've had a, a year plus to really assess the state of European defense. Uh, Europe, to also understand what European forces are giving. Uh, to Ukraine, and also the threat landscape that will present itself for Europe, both when it comes to Russia, but also other other threats and challenges. Um, when you look at European defense, what you realize is that it isn't very European. It is uh, European defense is done by uh, nation states and member states uh, in, in Europe and uh, within NATO. And NATO is a member state driven organization. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. That was the, the you know, how, uh, you know, NATO was created 74 years ago. It's about to have its 75th anniversary next year. Uh, and defense was seen as the domain of the nation state. The problem is that NATO has been successful, right? Where for many European states, the threat to the nation is actually, there isn't really one. If you take your country like Belgium, there, Belgium faces a lot of security threats, but most of them aren't necessarily of the national military uh, uh, domain. They are uh, uh, law enforcement. They are uh, protecting the European institutions that are in Europe. Um, but they're not needing to sort of protect Belgium airspaces from a French or UK or German invasion, hopefully not. Uh, and, and this is also true for many Western European countries. And so what you see is this sort of cacophonous landscape throughout Europe where you see countries like Poland now spending uh, close to 3% or above 3% on defense, seeing the urgent threat by Russia, a country like Greece uh, spending 2%, but not because of really NATO obligations, I would say, but because of a threat by another NATO country, Turkey. Uh, and so you see these very nationally driven uh, uh, um, focus on defense. But what that means is that there's a lot of gaps when it comes to European security, when it comes to European defense. And we as Americans tend to look at Europe and say, why aren't the Europeans getting their act together? Well, that's not how European defense is designed to do. It is designed so that nation states spend what they're going to spend and then contribute what they can contribute to NATO. To NATO then coordinates everything together. And what we highlight in this report is that the major question here is what does the U.S. actually want from Europe? And this is, I think, the penultimate question that maybe I'll just go into now and then we can uh, – because this – so the report, the, you know, after the introduction, the first section it, it highlights is what, is Europe, what does the U.S. want from European defense? Now, on the one hand, I think most uh, listeners would come to this question and say, well, of course, we want Europe to be able to take – to handle stuff that it's not as dependent and reliant on the United States to handle every little thing and that we can, you know, European militaries can step up, get their act together. This has sort of been the rhetoric that we've seen from, from countless presidents. On the other hand, actual U.S. policy, what we point out in the report, 
is to preserve the indispensable role that the United States plays in European defense. We actually like your, that European countries are dependent on the U.S. to uh, f- to conduct military operations. We get very concerned when we see uh, EU efforts or efforts at the European level for Europeans to get their act together, to, to spend on European defense companies, not to spend on American defense c- companies. Uh, we have more influence in Europe than any other region of the world, in part because of Europe's uh, reliance and dependence on the United States. And so there's a debate playing out. There are really good foreign affairs articles from people like Mark, uh, Mike Mazar from Rand Corporation saying, you know, we actually get a pretty good deal with NATO. Kathleen McGinnis also here at CSAS. And then there's others, many uh, from the restraint crowd, a restraint community, Emma Ashford and others who've written in foreign affairs, uh, arguing that actually we want Europe to be more autonomous, more independent. And I think what this report tries to do is lay out well, okay, I think we do want Europe to be more uh, autonomous, to be stronger, to be able to do things without us, to handle itself both because the United States is going to have be focused on the Indo-Pacific. But that's going to take a long time. And we need to begin the process of pushing Europe to integrate its forces more, to develop its forces together, to buy together, to cooperate more together. And that's a long-term generational approach. So we, we sort of see that debate and try to maybe, I don't know about finding a middle ground, but basically to say that we can't just rip a Band-Aid off. This is going to be a slow process, but we need to have a strategy that is about uh, wanting Europe to be stronger uh, and more capable actor in the world. So you mentioned the problem is NATO has been successful. In the report, you address how NATO has played a role itself in not necessarily driving this fragmentation, but not contributing to integration and cooperation. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, look, when NATO was founded, uh, the European community or the European economic uh, uh, community did not exist. Uh, But what we've seen over the last 30 years is there is a union. And what we've also seen over the last decade is when that union has come under threat that the EU has responded, and and to paraphrase Mario Draghi, has done whatever it takes to protect that union. Uh, whether that's buying vaccines together so Germans get vaccinated at the same rate as Bulgarians, uh, or taking strong stance on migration, sometimes even potentially violating uh, human rights. The EU has done, has taken action, uh, and Sean can attest to that when it comes to the UK, um, that is, is, you know, acting more uh, like a union. And this is a new development in Europe. And so that's happening at the same time uh, defense is is to remain, uh, and we're having this argument about defense just being the domain of the nation state. Well, right now, nothing is just the domain at the nation state. And what NATO has demonstrated that it can do quite effectively, I think, is coordinating all these forces and somehow creating an integrated fighting force. What NATO has not done, and what our report argues, is having those countries, those national ministries of defense that all have their different procurement agencies, these 27 or different Pentagon, to cooperate together when it comes to spending the money. So Europe doesn't build its forces together. Hence, it's no wonder that there's big gaps when it comes to airlift, when it comes to uh, air tankers and air transport. Um, And so that is, is, I think, a major problem. What we point to is the role the EU can play here is do what it does, which is integrate sectors. And so when it comes to defense, it should be trying to integrate how Europeans buy. 
And what that means in the big pill that the United States would have to swallow in supporting the strategy is it means if the European Union is going to spend money and it has the fiscal capacity, it has the ability to generate resources, it has the euro, the currency, it has an ability to borrow money on capital markets, something that NATO does not have, uh, something the European Union did in response to the pandemic, then it means that Europe is going to spend money on European defense companies, not American defense companies, or or much less, it's going to spend more on European companies. And that's fine. And I think that's actually going to be somewhat beneficial to the NATO alliance as a whole because a strong defense industrial base in Europe could be beneficial to us in the long run. I think Ukraine is demonstrating the importance of having a strong European defense industrial base as well. That, that's fine, but it probably depends on who you're talking to on this side. Sure. But since we're now on the subject of the European Union, Maria, I want to turn to you. Uh, we've, you've, you've heard the crux of the report. I'm sure you've read it as well. There have been conversations for years about whether the EU should do more, how to collaborate better with NATO, on also just years and years of conversations, at least from the US side, of how much more Europeans should do. What is the view from Europe on this, especially when we're having conversations about having the EU do more? Do you see member states being open to this? How do they view this conversation when it happens in the US? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm very, uh, very privileged. Um, actually, it's very interesting because the question here in the US, you, you, you mentioned, Max, is uh, d does the US want to remain indispensable uh, to European security? The debate in, in Europe is not so much on that. Uh, it's definitely more like how uh, do we make sure that uh, we remain the ally the United States wants because, of course, the U.S. is going to be the indispensable partner because of the nuclear umbrella. And uh, so the question is very is 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 in on that and this is where the strategic ambiguity of the united states is playing out because uh depending where you are in europe you're not going to answer the same way because the united states send mixed signal uh between yes we want you to do more and at the same time but please don't build a european defense uh technological industry base um and uh and you know, don't don't misalign with us because we, we want to preserve the transatlantic unity. And so depending on where you are in Europe, you're not going to answer the same way. Uh, in, in, in many countries, uh, if you fear that the United States is reluctant on any European-led defense initiative, you're not going to push for more ambitious moves because your priority is not on this integration, it's not on making European stronger, is to be sure that the United States are going to be there when the time uh, arrives. And so uh, in other countries, like in France, uh, because for many reasons you have a different policy, uh, there, the answer is uh, the same. We want to have the American there for us, but uh, the strategy is going to be different. It's going to be a good ally for me is to invest in capabilities. It's to be able to lead operations that the United States don't necessarily want to lead by themselves, etc. And so I think to have a change in that, uh, uh, for, for make the debate move forward in Europe and at the EU level too, is to uh, stop having strategic uh, ambiguity of the United States on European defense. I think it's really interesting the way you framed it that I think maybe we miss sometimes on this side, which is integration is not necessarily the priority on the European side, is ensuring the partnership with the United States and retaining that close alliance as we hear constantly the move to the Indo-Pacific, etc. But as I hear this, I keep wondering, 
What about all these conversations, I guess, two years ago, of strategic autonomy? Is that dead? Is there any political will for it left or just France, maybe? I think the issue with strategic autonomy that we focused for way too long on the terms. Uh, and because we framed it in the wrong way, the basis of the debate is wrong. Uh, we framed it in, a, in, in either it means like uh, as actually having strategic autonomy means to distance ourselves from the United States. Uh, and never, you know, you, you, we consider the strategic autonomy as much more global. And also, you know, the way like maybe we need strategic autonomy when we have to be facing China our other adversaries. And so uh, we focused way too much on the terms because we want to make sure that it doesn't, um, you know, antagonize, it's not going to antagonize the United States. So strategic autonomy, European sovereignty, uh, strategic responsibility, strategic intimacy, I love it. Um, <laughs> it's it's so, many, uh, uh, so many terms, but at the end of the day, what happens is that we don't talk about the problem it's supposed to address. At the same time, the Europeans and, and the EU have done for much more on strategic autonomy in the past five years uh, than we would ever have imagined it. And I think in a way, the United States have every interest to embrace that and to make the most of it, uh, for instance, the EU-US uh, security and defense dialogue that is not set up for a year or two now. Um, also to make sure that you know coordination and cooperation is still uh, very much um, ensured. Uh, and yeah, to, to, make, to, to maybe stop the debate on the terms, but actually address the, the, the challenge because what was sustainable 20 years ago, like European dependence was probably sustainable 20 years ago. It's not today. And we're seeing that more and more every day. So Sean, let me turn to you for a little bit. Conspicuously absent from this conversation so far is the United Kingdom. If we're talking about the United States, about the European Union's role in uh, filling some of these gaps, where does the UK stand in all this? Understanding they are indeed in NATO and their relationship with the United States remains very close. Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, came recently. So the relationship here is positive. But how do you see the cooperation working out? Where, the, where can the UK play a role in this effort, given the current state of the relationship with Brussels? Sure. Well, well, first of all, let me say thanks, Donison, for having me on. It's been great to discuss some of these issues in your excellent podcast, The Eurofile. So great to do so in person with great colleagues and friends, too. Um, to your point, well, let me start with strategic intimacy. I hadn't heard that one before. Me neither. Um, <laughs> I know we've got a special relationship with the, with the US, but I didn't realize the French had strategic intimacy. Go. <laughs> write that one down. Um, I, I think Marie is right on the point about strategic autonomy. I think Actually, the, the, the language used by the Biden administration, a, a stronger, more capable European defence, is, is the right language. The issue is what does that mean in practice? And this is where I, I think Max and Otto's report and this whole series of reports, two of which I've authored myself, um, you know, aim to kind of help thicken that. What, what does that stronger, more capable European defence actually mean in, in practice but m maybe we'll get to that first on, on the UK directly to your question uh, and thanks for having me as a kind of token non-European uh, non-EU member in, in the room um, look the UK has left the EU but it's still in Europe the last time I checked and you know, if you read the, the UK's integrated review which we refreshed 
we seem to be refreshing it every six months. Uh, but we refreshed it in, in March, and it has a very large section on how important Euro-Atlantic security is to us, how important European security is to us. It even mentions the European Union three times, and we're not even we're not even members. Uh, clearly, the, the current government in, in the UK, you know, it, the, the the policy is basically not to have a formal relationship, a security arrangement with with the, with the EU's so defence and security arrangement. That may change in time. There are elections next year, uh, but you know, the UK has a very strong relationship with the EU, with Europe. The Integrated Review Refresh has a, a very large section, which I commend you to read on all of the things that the UK has done since it's left the EU to strengthen bilateral ties with, with partners, uh, including France. So I think the, the UK shares the interests of uh, all of its European partners to have a stronger, more capable European defence. As I said, the question is, how how do we do that? I think where certainly London and Paris differ, differ slightly, and, and London and Washington are kind of on the same page here, is that um, the kind of institutional division of labour, if you like, between NATO and the EU, which has been uh, has kept think tankers and academics in jobs for many years, um, has been an erstwhile feature of European uh, defence and security. I mean, Max mentioned the European Economic Community after World War Two. There was a, uh, a, a European defence community, which was actually proposed by none other than Winston Churchill, which amazingly was shot down by the French mm-hmm. at the time. But... In time, we you know we got to the San Malo agreement between Jacques Chirac and Tony Blair in 1998, and we have this this European defence uh, identity and, and policy. Um, uh, you know, so but but I think what Ukraine has kind of showed us in European Europe's response to Ukraine is really you know, if NATO didn't exist, you'd you'd have to invent it. The, the you know the NATO is there as the primary security guarantor of European defence. However, as Max and Otto point out in their report, there is a lot more that the EU can do. The EU, as an institution, has levers that NATO does not have. It has fiscal regulatory levers that NATO does not have. So I think what Max and co are saying in this report, particularly to US policymakers, but also those in London too, is that maybe it's time for a more nuanced uh, approach towards the value that the European Union uh, can add on this this goal of a stronger, more capable Europe that, that everybody shares. Certainly, and if we're focused on outcomes, that's that's where the solutions should be found, wherever they lie. Exactly. But you mentioned some of the briefs that you've written for this project, and we actually interviewed you about one of them uh, in March, where you wrote that Europe has a dilemma. It is spending more on defense, but cooperating less, which I think goes directly to the heart of some of the issues that the report, this report brings to the surface. You also talked of strategic cacophony, which is an excellent term for what we're discussing today. Yes, <laughs> next to strategic intimacy, <laughs> although slightly different meanings. Uh, why don't we, let, let's dive into that a little bit and how that plays into the challenge that we're dealing with today on this broader level. And Max's report mentions this. What did you observe in that brief that relates to the challenge at hand? Sure. So, so thanks for bringing the, re- the report up. The report, Europe's Defence Dilemma. So what is Europe's Defence Dilemma? Well, it's simply that, well, European nations are spending more on defence and they have spent around a third more on defence since 2014, since Russia's annexation of Crimea. Defence spending has risen. At the same time, defence cooperation between European nations has uh, declined. I mean, this, is, this is quite a striking uh, trend that spending's going up, but cooperation is going down. It's kind of opposite to which to what you'd expect. Um, where's that money going then? Well, a lot of it's 
coming over here to, to the States. So a, a lot of uh, European nations are implementing a kind of buy America policy. Now, this makes sense to some uh, extent. So air defense systems, say, for example, as US systems off the shelf, Patriot NASMs that are being procured, fighter jets, F-16, and so on. There's a lot of US equipment that is ready to go, that is uh, kind of proven uh, and of the very highest standard that Europe is buying to fill the gaps that exist in Europe. But as kind of Max points out, this is maybe not the most sustainable solution when we're thinking in the long term uh, how to sustain, as Marie said, a European defence industry and a European military that is, whether it's autonomous or not, is beside the point. How, how strong is it? How capable is it of deterring future Russian uh, aggression, deterring Chinese economic coercion and, and, and so on? Uh, yeah, this is the key question. So the fact that European nations are not cooperating with each other or cooperating with each other less, so less multinational joint acquisition projects, less multinational R&D, those exist. Uh, and the EU has uh, instruments to help uh, encourage more more cooperation, the European Defence Fund, the IDERPA, the European Defence uh, Investment uh never mind what it stands for, but it, it, the point <laughs> is it encourages joint procurement uh, and research and development. But the, the sums, and Max can probably talk to us, the sums are, are quite small. We're talking 500 million here, a, a billion there. It's a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of defence procurement, it, it's not much. So there's more juice uh, for the squeezing there to mm-hmm. encourage cooperation. So speaking of many European uh, initiatives, Marie, I'd like to turn to you on this. Is the flurry of European initiatives that we've seen over the last few years a boon to this effort to coordinate more on defense? Is it a potential hurdle? Because we've seen political, um, economic, and administrative level potential challenges, but also opportunities at the European level. So how do you see this among all of these initiatives that we've heard about and acronyms that we've long forgotten? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, First, let me say that we had EU-driven initiatives, but also non-EU but European initiatives that actually bring also back the uh, the UK and, mm-hmm. and, and with other uh, European countries or like the, the, the Jeff. Um, so th- there's these two tracks. Um, what, uh, what the EU uh, defense initiatives Uh, why they're not delivering as much as we would like to is that they're not ambitious enough. And why they're not ambitious enough? Uh, for different reasons, but um, coming back also to, to the messaging uh, from the United States. Um, but what I thought was very interesting in the past few months was uh, for the very first time in March, you had an Estonian-led initiative to, uh, co- to jointly uh, buy um, ammunition uh, for Ukraine. And that's very specific. Uh, that's very new. And uh, the United States was actually much more positive in terms of narrative and language. And in a way, you know, it pushed the Europeans to, to, to do more and say, okay, so let's be ambitious. What else can we do? The second uh, issue on, on this, on the industrial capacity, is that most of, most of the time the Europeans don't think that industries can do it. Uh, how many times did I hear, did I hear uh, well, we need to buy uh, to the U.S. or to turn to Israel or South Korea or whatever, uh, because I don't believe that our industries can. And then when you look a bit more into depth, the European industries are there and they say, yeah, we're not working full capacity right now, despite the war in Ukraine, despite the shortfalls in capabilities. 
because they, they didn't have the orders. So these are also the, the questions uh, that are at stake. And what, the, what, I, what I think in the report really uh, underlined and, and in a very important way is that national uh, government decide keeping in mind with uh, the interests of the national industries. It's absolutely what the Americans are doing. The issue is that the EU is not a country. Um, and so uh, what the EU can do is really, you know, to give the incentives, uh, because it's not a zero-sum game, it's actually added money. Like, contrary to, to NATO, for instance, where uh, any time you have to increase the budget of NATO, you have to take it from the Ministry of Defense budget. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a choice you have to do. Uh, it doesn't make that you shouldn't do it. It's just like it's it's not adding money. Uh, when we reinforce the budget of the EU in defense uh, and in security initiatives, the budget you take is not coming from the Ministry of Defense. It comes from the envelope you give at the EU level. Does, so it actually gives more money. And this money is adding up to whatever NATO can do or national nations can do. And this kind of you know, initiatives in a much more positive narrative can uh, really help, I think, uh, to have more ambitious uh, um, initiative. Uh, but my concern in a way is I would like sometimes to hear from DC why are you not more ambitious? Instead of what about the interest of my industries? Why are there restrictions there? Why cannot why cannot I benefit from EU uh, taxpayer money? And this is what we have heard for many many years. Um, we're not surprised, but I would like you know, I mean, five hundred million for a joint procurement and incentivization. Yeah, sure, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. It's not enough. No, the scale is too small, certainly. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I want to pick up on the thread that you just threw out on the U.S. approach to this. But first, you mentioned the U European defense industry, and I wanted to turn back to you, Max, actually on this. When it comes to scaling up to the level of ambition that you would like to see or the report calls for, especially with the assistance of your EU funds for this, one, can those companies, in fact, scale up from what we're hearing from them? Uh, if they get the political and financial commitments from EU governments, um, European governments, that the equipment would be needed and purchased once manufactured? And can they compete with the American defense industry if they do decide to do this? It, it, it's a great question. I think the answer is yes and no. I think there will be moments where if you're a country uh, like Poland or Eastern European countries that have given away uh, their Soviet-era fle uh, fleets of tanks, suddenly you're looking at your tank inventory and said, we need tanks tomorrow and who can build them? Well, the Koreans can build them quickly. And and I, so I think there's going to be – there's a, a genuine dilemma where buying off the shelf proven technology – uh, versus, you know, the Europeans have a, a tank that they're you know, working on in development, the future tank. But there's also the ability to just procure the leopard tank as is and, and get those factory lines moving. So I think there's going to be a, a, a bit of both. I think to Marie's point, I, I think that this is exactly right, that the United States has been very parochial when it comes to these EU defense initiatives, that instead of us going and saying you borrowed for COVID, you should borrow for war and invest in defense 
uh, to the EU, we haven't done that. President Biden went to the European uh, Council last year and didn't make that point. Uh, and instead, we're still sort of, well, well, we need access. The U.S. needs access to these potential funds. We need this administrative arrangement with the European Defense Agency, even though the EDA doesn't even really do a lot of contracting. Uh, it, it's it's more, you know, and I, I get it. I was in the State Department. If you're in the State Department, if you're in the French Foreign Ministry or UK Foreign Ministry, you want to support French companies, you want to support UK companies and US companies. And that is what we do in Europe. But there's a larger strategic uh, uh, question at play here. And and I, I think that is is really critical because we're, we're at a really pivotal moment. European militaries are... Uh, are in disrepair um, and are, but there's suddenly this will and willingness to uh, to try to do something about it. And so we're seeing increased commitments to uh, increased defense spending. Well, maybe not all of those are going to be reached. I think many of them will be. So we're about to see a lot more money being injected into European militaries. And as Sean mentioned, over the last decade, we actually saw increases in European defense. American presidents going on, and it wasn't just Donald Trump, American presidents going on and saying spend more in defense. And the Wales Pledge from 2014 has, I think, worked. European defense spending increased. But what happened to European defense overall? I would say you had marginal increase because you had marginal increases in defense spending spread out. And, and so what we're arguing for here is that, uh, Otto and I, what we're arguing for is that the United States should put as much emphasis on uh, on uh, defense integration, on defense cooperation amongst Europeans as it does on spending more. So as much as we're saying spend more, we should say you should do it together. Why Why doesn't Europe have certain capabilities such as airlift and, and refueling? You should be investing together to figure out how to deal with that. And the irony is that actually defense cooperation tends to increase when defense budgets go down because countries become desperate to figure out how to maintain their defense forces. So we see uh, uh, Dutch-German integration happening in the naval domain because suddenly it's they don't have the the, the manpower to to operate the ships um, and I think there's a danger that actually European defense cooperation gets worse because suddenly defense budgets are flush and so this is where the EU with 500 million to incentivize joint cooperation is not enough money and the US should be saying do more do more do more but do more at the European level to incentivize the, the necessary cooperation and that's very connected to the brief that you published mm. on. And I, I think it was, for me, it was particularly helpful reading it because some of these statistics I'd never really encountered before. And I think they're very striking when you think about the trajectory for the last 10 years. But you wrote another piece for this overarching project on specifically air defense and defense and shortfalls in the defense uh, realm. Where do you see the capabilities needed for strategic interests in Europe. And I'd also love to tie with the UK defense industry as well. Where do you see this, the role that the industry has in cooperating with EU industries, for example? Is Are there already projects that we can point to for future examples? Mm. Yeah, got you, okay. Well, let, let me start with the point about cooperation and the previous report, defend, defend, the Defence Dilemma report. So cooperation is, is very difficult, and the report goes into many reasons why this is. It's essentially a, a collective action problem where nations are incentivized to do the best thing for themselves. The tragedy is if they all work together, they'd all be, be better off, right? Um, 
and you know, look, cooperation is is difficult. We came up with a, a few ways of maybe enhancing cooperation using institutions like the EU and NATO, which don't forget are designed to reduce the friction of, of cooperation. And we came up with kind of three big ideas. One, more cooperation between small groups of nations, small groups of like-minded nations already work together. Uh, Marie uh, mentioned the JEF, the Joint Expeditionary Force, 10 Northern European uh, nations that work together. Nordic uh, defence cooperation is already quite high. Uh, in Southern Europe, Central Europe, there are countries that often work together. So use those small small groups. Cooperation doesn't have to be at 27 or 31, soon to be 32. Um, uh, number two, kind of normalise cooperation, make cooperation a political priority. This is something that the EU has done very well. Uh, the Versailles Declaration last year in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine actually put cooperation right at the top. It wasn't just about assisting Ukraine, but it was about Europe, Europe, EU nations cooperating with each other to provide that assistance. I think NATO could do the same. We've got the NATO Vilnius summit on the horizon in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, there wasn't much, uh, as Max's report points out, there wasn't much in the Madrid summit last year on cooperation and capability cooperation. I think NATO needs to do uh, more. It already does a lot. I mean, there are 18 or so high visibility projects on some of the areas that, that Max mentioned. But I think NATO could do more to prioritise uh, cooperation. And then kind of showing leadership and uh, doing things like naming and shaming countries that don't cooperate with each other. The, the EU, again, they produce very detailed figures on which nations cooperate. Um, there are some flaws in, the, in those figures. We go into those in the report. NATO doesn't it produces defence spending figures but doesn't go into too much detail on cooperation. So there's, there's more uh, to do there. On the air defence problem, which we produce this report on European Sky Shield, you mentioned as a kind of a case study on a new cooperation initiative. There, it's German-led. It was announced last year by Chancellor Schultz as part of the, the Zeitenwende, this new era of defence. Uh, it features in the German national security strategy that was released last week. Um, but it's quite a complicated uh, initiative with 17 nations. And by my estimation, there's been no multinational cooperation initiative with 17 nations that has ever succeeded. It's usually a handful of like-minded nations. Uh, and, and now we have uh, another kind of competing French-led initiative. I don't think it's competing, but it kind of seems that way. Perhaps Marie could tell us more. But there's a, so there's a French-led air defence initiative and this German-led sky shield thing, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot going, going on there. Uh, other areas of capabilities, well, previous CSES reports have, have covered this in some detail, but basically Europe doesn't have the... Uh, you know, Europe kind of reaped this peace dividend at the end of the Cold War. And Europe doesn't have the mass uh, to deter the high-end conflict. Uh, it relies on the US for that. Um, European nations can field, Marie used this, this phrase earlier in conversation, but bonsai, the so-called bonsai army, small but perfectly formed. Europe needs uh, more mass. It needs high technology, and it's good at that. Um, but ultimately... Europe needs more mass, more high-end capabilities, more warships, more tanks to deter the very kind of conflict that we don't need to, that we don't want to fight. And finally, the UK industry on this, well, you know, UK industry is global in outlook, and that includes Europe. Um, I take MBDA as an example, which has a British arm, an Italian arm, and a French arm. Uh, they work together. Sometimes they don't. They all produce. They work on separate um, uh, airborne uh, air defence interceptor missile projects. For example, the UK is working with Poland through MBDA UK. Um, uh, France and Italy, I think, are working together. Um, so there's there's some cooperation there, but it, but it could be better. 
Uh, another example is the, the GCAP, the Global Combat Air Program. So the UK has got this uh, program with Italy and Japan actually looking at future kind of combat air unmanned. There's also a European program looking at the same thing. So again, there's, there's some healthy competition there. But look, I, you know, UK industry is, 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 is part of the picture. There's no reason uh, why the UK shouldn't cooperate on, on any of this. And you mentioned Vilnius coming up next month. Clearly, this is on the minds of a lot of people at NATO as well. We saw a recent meeting with, what, 25 major Western defense companies uh, to address capacity issues for what they call um, battle-decisive munitions and equipment. So these there are positive moves here. There's an understanding of this need for rearmament. But inevitably, other companies came out to complain that they were not invited. That includes, I believe, Boeing and uh, Dassault, who are major defense companies. But probably both a question for you, Marie and Max. Do you see this being in the same vein of fragmented approach? Or is this a positive step that NATO is taking to try to start bundling some of these industries, some of these companies to focus on very specific needs, as you were mentioning, for example, the Estonian proposal for specific kinds of ammunition. Where do you see this kind of effort lying on the road to better integration? Perhaps, let's start with you, Marie. Sure. Um, I think initiatives like may they come from NATO, from the EU, from, you know, coalition of states. It's fine as long as we talk to each other. And the issue for, uh, which has been for a very long time, for instance, is the EU does what it does, NATO does what it does, and sometimes we do not talk to each other, and we might actually do things that are in competition uh, in a way that should not have been. Uh, we have to take what NATO can do the, um, in, in a very, like, what NATO is good at, what the EU is good at, and make them talk. And uh, the the challenge, and you mentioned it in the report, is NATO-EU cooperation has been stalling for years because uh, of diverging in, um, interest uh, with Turkey. And as long as as we don't solve that, uh, we don't, like, NATO-EU cooperation doesn't become a priority. Uh, that we think that doing a statement without a roadmap is enough. Um, I don't think initiatives, whatever they are, uh, I, are we going to maximize uh, them? Um, and so that would be really my, my priority in order to order uh, to avoid sorry uh, more fragmentation. Um, and in a way, I don't think uh, we we're going to head anywhere if we don't make it a priority. Uh, anytime soon, and it comes also at the highest level um, of, of responsibilities, I think it will be very important to have in NATO and in the EU, at the top level, people who know both organizations, because they know they can maximize, maximize and uh, like, oh, I need to talk to Secretary General uh, because he can leverage on this. If we talk about, you know, uh, critical infrastructure, uh, I will I will talk to uh, to the EU because they they can actually have the project on this, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that will be that will be my point on this. Yeah, I think. Look, NATO EU bureaucratic rivalry is sort of well known that there's, you know, immense distrust between. 
the two institutions. It sort of reminds me a bit when I started at the State Department in, in 2011 of state DOD rivalries. And, and there was sort of suddenly this effort to get over that and, and expand cooperation. But but it's incredibly unhelpful. And I, in some ways, it's ridiculous that the idea that the EU and NATO are in competition um, and, and rivals to each other when they have, you know, uh, I think 24 EU members or soon to be will be part of NATO. Um, it's 95% of the EU population is in NATO. Um, it's So we're talking about uh, two institutions, NATO and the EU, uh, that have uh, that have uh, the same membership effectively, um, at least in, in a European context. Uh, and But what I think we're seeing is that the EU does have a role to play in defense. And even if you didn't think it did, uh, you know, with the, the EU debates that are happening right now when it comes to fiscal policy and whether to set uh, return to the Stability and Growth Pact, which will set deficit levels and force European countries to reduce their deficits, well, that means you're not going to see a lot of defense spending. So you could argue the most important conversation on the future of European defense isn't going to happen at Vilnius, but it will happen between EU finance ministers that aren't at Vilnius. So the, so the idea that we're going to separate these two, and I think this is part of the problem we see with European thinking, is that Defense ministers go talk to NATO and the leaders do, but then everyone else on the domestic side of the house just focuses on the European Union. And so you have this kind of disaggregated approach when it comes to defense and security oftentimes within Europe. I think it's great that NATO is doing that. I think other NATO initiatives, the Diana initiatives, the, the NATO Innovation Fund all make sense. Uh, but the EU also has uh, also R&D-related uh, initiatives. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not worried about duplication. What I am worried about is, is the lack of coordination. And that's where, because the EU is an actor, you have to coordinate with it. And I think part of that is getting over, uh, the U.S. getting over some of its concerns. But then uh, Marie points to the, the Turkey-Cyprus problem, which is, you know, Cyprus is part of the EU, Turkey's part of NATO. This is a real dilemma, but it's never prioritized as this is something that we need to get over. And I think once Sweden gets, gets over the line, hopefully, that uh, this should be next on, on the priority list. Um, I think the, the one other thing I would just maybe highlight here uh, is that that you know we're not talking about the EU creating its own army, right? So there, it, throughout you know we're we're thirty minutes more than thirty minutes in this conversation, no one has been like the EU is going to create its own army, and we're talking sort of about the nitty gritty of defense procurement, and part of this is because this is I think critical for Europe to build a cohesive uh, def defense uh, uh, capacity, uh, but. This involves nations working together. And I think what we would see is that over time, the EU could have a greater role when it comes to coordinating defense forces. And you could see a situation very recently, very soon, where the EU, which already conducts uh, peacekeeping missions, crisis management and response missions, deciding that, you know what, it needs to take action in a North African country. It needs to act, let's say, in Sudan to prevent maybe a humanitarian crisis. And that's something that NATO may not want to do because the United States may say we're not going to 
focus on the Middle East and we're not going to do those sorts of missions anymore. But the EU, seeing you know migrants come into the European Union, may decide this is a threat to the EU, that the EU is beginning to have interests of a global power. And especially when trade and economic policy are done at the EU level and increasingly migration policy, you start to see the EU starting to act, need to act to defend its own interests. And this is where I think if NATO is constantly resistant to the EU being a defense actor, uh, it's going to threaten NATO over the longer term here. And I think that the, it's figuring out how to uh, minimize unnecessary duplication. But you know, having worked with the Pentagon a lot, there's a lot of duplication at the Pentagon, and it exists for a reason. You don't want to have gaps. You want you know different entities to be able to do things uh, and respond and not have seams. And right now, there's a bit of a seam that who acts for Europe if the United States isn't going to? It's not clear. And the report, to be fair, makes very clear the goal is not to create a European army or a single force. It's to help forge a European pillar within NATO. I think if we were actually talking about European army, everybody in Washington would have a collective aneurysm. But even and, if... And in London. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that was Winston Churchill's idea originally, the European oh. army. I mean, it was, he, he had a lot of good ideas, some, plenty of bad ones. I think it was one yeah. of the bad The ones. US was also, you know, John Foster Dulles did, went to the NATO Council and sort of demanded the creation of the European defense community. It, it's long been, you know, the US, the Eisenhower vision was that there was going to be a European... Uh, military and it was the French uh, who objected. And frankly, I think if that were to happen, if that were to be on the table, I think the biggest obstacle actually, and this is not uh, to uh, attack the French, but it would be the French in part because the French have a, a national military that is capable. And so you're going to have these different variances of uh, of interest in working together, and that's fine. And but it's about trying to encourage cooperation where it can. But even several steps removed from a European army, you said, we're just talking about the nitty gritty of defense procurement here. That's not that, that's not a small thing. No, it's this, not a small To have this yeah. conversation in Washington. And I, I want to turn to the U.S. side because we've talked at length about the U.K., about the EU, about NATO. But the elephant in the room here is the U.S. approach to this entire effort. And you've talked about this at the beginning as well. But I want to dive a little deeper into this is the EU's rise as a defense actor is not going to be possible without U.S. support, without engagement with a lot of these governments. But how how do you see US, a positive U.S. role playing out in this situation? And how do you see um, addressing some of the potential concerns that exist in the Pentagon, to some extent in the State Department, to a stronger European defense industry to more euros going to European companies and not American companies. Yeah. So look, in some ways, this is super easy, what we're suggesting. You know, oh, this well, is not, I, I'm, I'm not calling, you know, this report, uh, Otto and I don't call for the United States to suddenly buy, you know, five more aircraft carriers and and spend all this money. This is literally about a shift in diplomatic messaging. Um, and the idea here is that this is essentially the card that the United States hasn't played on European defense. And it may not work, right? Uh, calling on uh, the EU and other in the European to start doing more together may not lead to a, a big transformation. But I think, as uh, Marie mentions, is that we lower the ambition of the European Union when it comes to defense uh, because there's an assumption that the Americans will be against it. 
And even when we're not that vocally against it, oftentimes we're sort of behind the scenes, hey, we really need access to this. And we uh, oppose things very um, sometimes bluntly, which happened a, a number of times during the Trump administration with EU-wide initiatives, or sometimes quietly, which has happened at times during the Biden administration where we express concerns uh, quietly. And I've heard that from, from European sources and American sources. And so I, I think that the shift here is saying we want Europe to get its act together and we actually mean it and we want the EU to do uh, to to spend more to leverage its uh, its ability to borrow its 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 currency its fiscal capacity its large budget uh, to incentivize cooperation and we don't care if Europeans buy more or buy more and they do that by buying European uh, and then what we want NATO to do is to make sure that we all have the same standards because one of the things that the war in Ukraine is, is demonstrated is that you know not all 155 millimeter uh, mortar rounds are the same and there's actually a reason for that sometimes they're they're newer and older and you make improvements so standardization is sort of sometimes a moving target but I think we would want UK uh, munitions to be able to go on American platforms so if we were in the Indo-Pacific in a contingency with China uh, and there's a, a you know a Taiwan ex- a war game that was done by Mark Hansian here at CSIS that noted that we would run out of munitions very quickly and we'd get our factories going here but look we have Europe which has 450 million people which has this huge economy economy the equivalent of size of the United States and China that can also produce uh, 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 munitions and other items that would be vital for any broader conflict with China. So our two defense industrial bases is a huge asset. And so really it's about shifting that, the focus and to instead of this being kind of a, a parochial focus on maintaining our access, how do we get Europe to be stronger, to be more capable, to maybe do separate military uh, operations in the Middle East or, or, or North Africa where we don't want to be uh, and, and and encourage that. So maybe that's the EU creating its own uh, command structure. Maybe it's the Europeans buying European, but this is where the United States being a productive actor. Right now, we're not really trusted when it comes to European defense because we've been so against it for so long. So shifting to being uh, uh, more pro-European than the Europeans, I think, is where I'm advocating. And this is not necessarily a new thing. The last thing is I love this quote, but Konrad Adenauer, the first German uh, uh, chancellor of West Germany, came out of Dean Atchison, in the Secretary of State's office and, and, said it, and said this is right after the um, early days of the Cold War, said, you know, Americans were the best Europeans, i.e. we are more pro-Europe than Europeans. And I think this is particularly the case when it should be the case when it comes to defense. And we want European nation states to work together uh, much more than than their national ministries to defense oftentimes want them to. When you wrote in a foreign affairs article that you co-wrote actually with our Carnegie colleague, Sophia Besh, on very similar topic, you see a lot of this action potentially taking place within the State Department and you mentioned a diplomatic shift, although you made it sound very easy. I don't know exactly if it is that easy, uh, but that they should consider the impact of U.S. arms sales on defense industrial base of the NATO alliance. But are, are they equipped for this? And what are the incentives uh, for this in the interagency process, thinking about yeah. the Pentagon as well? Because, you know, there's a saying that in trade and economics in the United States, we don't pick winners and losers. I don't know if that applies no, to the defense no, look, industrial base, but... So I, you know, my role in the State Department was oftentimes going to European countries to say, you should buy American. And, you know, th- I think those countries probably made some good choices. But on the other hand, if they decided not to buy American and buy French, wouldn't have been the end of the world. 
right? In some ways, the the strategic benefit that is gained for, uh, in the United States by selling to Europe is not equivalent to selling to India or countries in Southeast Asia, where we're trying to build diplomatic relations and partnerships. We're already in alliances with these countries. So the diplomatic, just from a foreign policy perspective, there's other gains, uh, benefits from economies of scale. So if countries are buying more Patriot, then it lowers the per unit cost. But to me, what we're... so. The, we, we need to start taking into account the weakness of the European defense industrial base and view it as a strategic priority for that to become stronger. And that doesn't mean we argue against U.S. companies for making a sale, but it may be, you know, we don't need to make it as uh, dire to diplomatic relations with said country if they don't buy said weapon system. Because, you know, Article 5 doesn't get any stronger if you, you know, buy U.S. weapons or not. It, 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 it's not in the clause. So, and I, I think making that um, but that's that that I think will be difficult and what I think what I sort of understated is that like look US policy for the past 25 years has been that the EU is an adversary when it comes to defense the EU shouldn't do defense that has been you know Madeleine Albright sort of laid that out don't duplicate uh, uh, NATO and that has been adopted as sort of doctrine in the State Department for 25 years but it's viewed as ridiculous inside of Europe that the idea that the EU is this challenger to NATO. And I think that's what we need to get over. And getting over that is a big challenge because every time the United States sort of hears the word strategic autonomy, we think, oh, this is divorce. And we're so quick to be paranoid about the future of transatlantic relations that, uh, that you know, we, we, uh, uh, we just want to always sort of preserve the status quo. And so there's this uh, sense that, no, the United States is pushing Europe to be stronger. Actually, we're really seeking to preserve the status quo. And I think that that's what we need to not be afraid of is change when it comes to transatlantic relations, I think will be positive because the direction that the EU is going is actually more alignment to the United States. And we see that with the relationship between von der Leyen and Biden, especially over China. The EU is more aligned with Washington, Brussels, than many uh, nation state uh, capitals, including Paris, including Berlin as well. So actually more alignment with Brussels, I think, would actually make our lives uh, easier. And it's not something we should be afraid of. If I can build on this, uh, on the messaging, I think I, I'm all for the exchange of messaging, but also to be very careful in, in the way we deliver it here from the US to the Europeans, because uh, the, the concern sometimes you will hear in Europe is that if we actually become stronger, uh, the United States will leave because we will be able mm -hmm. to do uh, to, to ensure our own security. And that is the nightmare for a lot of European countries, actually. And so uh, I think in the way of, of the phrasing uh, coming from the State Department of, of Pentagon would be, I need, a Europe to, I need Europe to be stronger, not because I want to be out, but because it's a condition for me to stay. And if you had this clear messages, messages, I think a lot of the countries, especially Eastern Central uh, member state in Europe, will actually okay. So I, I feel confident. Like let's go uh, because I, I, my my biggest fear is having the U.S. Uh, uh, having the U.S. out. And um, also, I think in, in terms of organization, what really struck me when I was back in Paris and, and interacting with uh, in, in the Pentagon with OSD policy, you don't have within the European section EU experts. You In Europe, basically, when you talk about European defense in the United States, you hear NATO. 
So you don't hear EU, you don't see the EU uh, having a potential role. And so whenever you have to build an initiative, a college and whatever, you, you're going to go through NATO because you don't have anyone who will maybe, you know, oh, by the way, the EU is working on this. Maybe that would be good to coordinate. No, it has to, this will be, you know, back in, in, in Brussels. And, 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 and so you also have to think in terms of organizing organization uh having the the people who you know share the same desk and and you know um on nato and the eu and like oh this is synergies there uh, maybe we could uh you know t mm -hmm. talk about that um very concrete very practical steps and uh finally what you said about um you know the article five is not about uh, buying uh, capabilities from the U.S. It reminds me of a, a conference of a uh, former Ministry of Minister of Defense, Parley, at the Atlantic Council in 2019, when she mentioned that Article 5 is not Article F35. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and that really uh, resonates today, because I, I, think, I, I think you're right. I, uh, uh, I think it's a great point. But I think it, it will be fooling ourselves if we don't, if we... Uh, ignore the fact that a lot of the Europeans also buy uh, American mi military equipment, not because they necessarily need, not be basically because this is what makes the most sense. It can be, uh, of course, uh, but it's also because it reinforces uh, from the European perspective the transatlantic link. And so this is why I really think this change of messaging is necessary from the US. Let me turn to you briefly, Sean, and then we'll do one final rapid fire question. Yeah, just as may shock you by agreeing 100% with Marie, uh, for the record. There, we have fixed um, it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are too many NATO heads in this town. Uh, there's not enough people like Max. Max is an outlier. Who is familiar with, with EU defence? <laughs> um, I myself worked a, a joint policy je uh, desk job on EU and NATO policy, and, and I, I recommend that that kind of system. I think more people in DC that understand EU and the, the entire landscape of European defence, which is much more complex than just the EU, clearly uh, would be a, would be a great thing for D DC. And on the you know Article F thirty five point, it's a flippant point, but actually. F-35 is a great example of a project which was you know, the biggest defence project in the history of the world, which was designed to be multinational. The UK makes about 10% of the parts of the F-35. So if, if the US does this right and has a smarter policy towards European defence, European acquisition, it can benefit more from co-development, co-production, exports, and kind of more, more, um, be more strategic intimacy with European defence and uh, industry. That is going to be our new thing. Sure. <laughs> so... Final question for all three of you, and I'll start with you, Sean, and then we'll end with you, Max, for closing words is looking ahead now that we have a couple really big milestones coming up for the alliance, how can allies, the U.S. and all the EU members that will be at Vilnius leverage both Vilnius and the next year, the 75th anniversary, looking if they all share the effort, uh, the, the goal that is outlined in this report? Yeah, it, it's this is a huge a huge moment, uh, you know, because of the war in Ukraine, but also because look for, for Europe for the transatlantic community, the U.S. strategy is pivoting, has been pivoting towards China for a while. The U.S. China is the pacing challenge, quoting the national defense and national security strategy. China is the focus. We all kind of live and work here. It's all about China. Europeans need to understand that. This is what's changed. This is what's structurally different from the kind of post-World War II period is that the US is now has its eyes completely on China and the Indo-Pacific region. Therefore, it's in the US interest 
and in Europe's interest to kind of step up on a, a stronger, more capable defence. Um, you know, Vilnius and the 75th anniversary summit next year will be crucial, uh, I think, on defence spending and NATO deterrence commitments that were made in, in Madrid, making good on those on those two. Yeah, very quickly. Um, I think either in, in Vilnius anniversary, like Washington summit, but also... Um, you know, lower levels, EU, US security defense dialogue, like to, to leverage as much as possible uh, to st to move forward the debate, not questioning, oh, is the EU NATO are com truly complementary or not? I think we, we, we must pass this debate um, as the Ukrainian war uh, actually uh, shown that the EU can do stuff, they can do like, training of Ukrainian troops, they can deliver weapons, things that NATO couldn't. At the same time, NATO has never been as strong and the EU has never been as strong. And so really to, to um, capitalize on, on this moment to maybe be a bit bold um, and uh, also having the Europeans to play finally collectively and stop uh, just, you know, oh, I'm such a great ally, look at the United States, like, I've done that for Ukraine, or I've done that for whatever. But instead of saying, you know, me, France, me, Spain, me, Greece, me, Poland, say us, Europeans, we've done that. And that will also, you know, uh, give the incentive, I think, for the United States to consider the Europeans as Europe, and not just as individual member states. I think that's a, a, a great sentiment that, you know, the EU has never been stronger and NATO has never been stronger and the two can be stronger together. Uh, and I think one of the things that, um, that we haven't talked about is what do Europeans want? And one of the things that uh, we highlight in the report, just to close, is that you increasingly see this in polling across Europe, uh, that Europeans want more, want EU defense because they get that the threats to their security aren't for, and this is for most, uh, this is widespread, whether it's in Eastern Europe or in Southern Europe, but particularly for those in Western and Southern Europe, that the threat isn't really to the nation, but to Europe. And they want their Europe protected. And so when the threat isn't to their nation, but to their Europe, the idea of spending more on defense at an EU level just makes fundamental sense. And it doesn't go against NATO. And I, I was in Madrid uh, last week, when you actually, you know, heard sentiment of actually it'd be easier to just spend more at the EU level than it would be on the national level because there'd be greater public support for that because, you know, there's history in Spain when it comes to their, their defense forces that are, is complicated. And so this notion that, you know, defense has to be done and invested on at the national level is not actually the case, especially when, you know, if you're 30 years or younger, you spent your whole life as an EU citizen. And that means a, a little bit more, a little bit, it's a different context and meaning than it was perhaps in the 90s when the last time the US really reckoned with a lot of these, the future of European defense and European security issues. So I think that's number one. And the second thing I would just say is the support for Ukraine, I think, is is pivotal. And while we're talking sort of long-term issues of trying to strengthen European defense over, over the longer term, the short-term reality of needing to sort of ramp up defense industrial production through ammunition to support the Ukrainians has to take precedence right now. And I think that that's where a lot of money needs to go. And through that process, I think you'll actually, you're seeing European uh, defense strengthen because it's, it's creating this sort of muscle memory of how Europe can actually work together. So thank you. 
That's a great way to end it. I want to thank you, all of you, panelists, Sean, Marie, Max, for joining us. The report, once again, is Transforming European Defense, a new focus on integration. It also has been published along with a lot of other briefs, really interesting from visiting fellows, from our colleagues in the uh, Defense Industrial Initiatives Group. So we encourage everybody to go to CSIS.org to read all of these amazing reports to get even more meat than what we had in the conversation today. But this remains a crucial issue for the transatlantic relationship, for Ukraine in particular, looking ahead to next week's summit uh, in Vilnius or the week after, and the next year, the 75th anniversary of the alliance. So if you want to hear more of this in the next few weeks as well, Max and I, I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot on the Europhile podcast, uh, but please continue to engage uh, with CSIS. I am sure there will be a lot more work coming your way on these issues. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Europhile. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. For more expert analysis on other foreign policy topics, visit csis.org podcasts.